Let's continue in this Why series, Why Christ Central, Why Scriptures in Prayer, Why Church Today. Came on a great Sunday. Why generosity? Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. It'll also be projected overhead. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, and then I'll jump to three verses in chapter 9. Okay, this is God's word. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. How did this little fledgling movement after its founder was publicly tortured and humiliated and crucified explode? How did this movement who followed Jesus as the way called Christianity come to overtake, in essence, even culturally, politically speaking, the early Roman Empire. Historians together have come up with several reasons. I just want to name some outstanding features at the outset of how Christianity overtook the early ancient world. First, Christians were known to have the highest and inclusive view and value of all life. Followers of Jesus were known to have the highest respect and value inclusive of all lives. Christians were known to not have racism. Christians were known to not be sexist. Christians were known to not be on power trips. Christians were known to not be all about classism, economics. They did not leave female slave children neglected out to die. They did not despise or neglect the poor. Greek or Jewish, black or white, Christian people were the people you can count on to come and treat all life as sacred and highly valuable because all life is made in the image of God. A second feature of the attractiveness of Christianity was the, they had a highest and exclusive view of sexuality. So on the one end, Christians had the highest and inclusive view of all of life, but Christians were also known to have the highest and exclusive view 
of their bodies, their physical bodies, and what we do with our sexualities. The saying went about Christians that they share their table with all, but not their beds. And a third outstanding feature, which is our focus today, is Christians were marked by abounding in every good work. They were generous. Generosity, generosity. They almost overflowed with good works and love. So how are we doing today? How are we doing today as the church of Jesus Christ? What have we lost along the way? Why are we so deficient in some of these areas? How can we recover it? Today we talk about why generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul is literally fundraising for famine relief. He says, I want to come to you, O Corinthian church, because you once pledged a certain amount. I want to make sure that you complete your vows because there are many, many people suffering in Jerusalem because of a famine. I'm writing to you for, quote, the relief of the saints. And the way that Apostle Paul, in these two chapters at least, is trying to stir the conscience of a far wealthier church, which is called the Corinthian church, probably much like ours in Orange County or Los Angeles, is he presents the example of Macedonian Christians, Macedonian believers, who, although were not wealthy, they've already given so generously for the relief of those suffering from famine. And so, Apostle Paul pens these words because he knew that the Corinthian church had a lot to learn from Macedonian Christians, and so do we. So do we. Four lessons. Four lessons. Verse 3 of chapter 8, Apostle Paul writes, For they, the Macedonians, gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. First lesson is Macedonian believers gave beyond their means. I don't know how else to take that except that Macedonian Christians gave more than they could have or should have. They gave beyond their means. They didn't have securities or savings set aside. They're taking some risks. And to give beyond your means forces you or is just a demonstration that you really do trust in God to provide for all things at all times. A second lesson, verse 4, chapter 8, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. There it is, the relief of the saints. But what did the Macedonian believers do? They begged to give. Lesson one, they went beyond their means. Second, they begged to give. So we can presume Apostle Paul, being brilliant and contextual, he knows that the Macedonian believers are not wealthy, that they are poor. Presumably, Apostle Paul was not expecting and was not trying to guilt trip these folks into giving for the relief of the saints. But this was reversed. It's like Paul couldn't stop them from giving because Macedonians came to him and said, Paul, 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 no, no, we beg you to give. Otherwise, our joy will not be made complete. Macedonian believers gave beyond their means. Macedonian believers also begged to give. Third lesson, third lesson, verse 5. 
And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Third lesson, the Macedonians gave not as mechanical and personal robots. They just weren't programmed or forced to do it. It was absolutely relational. It was not mechanical and personal, at least in two ways, at least in two relational ways. First, Apostle Paul says, we know they gave themselves to the Lord. Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. You have been bought with the price. You've been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Well, the Macedonian believers not only were glorifying God with their bodies, but with their money. With their money. They said, I don't belong to God. Nothing I have belongs. I mean, I don't, I don't belong to myself. Nothing I have belongs to myself. I belong to God, and everything I have belongs to God. And in a second relational way, they had already given themselves to not only God, but his people. His people. My friend, as a Christian person, you do not exist or belong just to yourself. And that's just an inconceivable impossibility. It's just, it's unconscionable that there are Christian people still walking around and thinking that all that matters in the world is just me. No, do you not know you've been bought with the price and now you've been bonded and grafted in and connected and united to all his people across the planet? You belong to the universal church that you know that in eternity your bond and fellowship with other Christian people would transcend and outlast any biological bonds? Do you not know that in eternity you'll be closer to other Christians than with anyone who does not yet come to Christ? And so these Macedonian believers gave beyond their means. They begged to give. And it was not mechanical and personal in any way. It was intensely relational. Last but not least, fourth lesson. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Let me translate those first two verses. Grace produces generosity. Grace Prize open stingy hands. Grace breaks open bank accounts. Grace will set very stressed out, obsessive, neurotic, fearful people free. Grace produces generosity. Because after all, my friends, in this materialistic shopping consumer culture that we all live and breathe in, God looks magnificent, glorious, and sufficient, and beautiful, and worthy, and generous when his people give away time, talents, treasures, possessions, securities to unleash ministry and missions and mercy for the gospel. And the contrast between the wealthier Corinthians and the poorer Macedonians could not be more clear, and it is continuing today, is it not? Here's the principle. Here's the running principle. I'm sorry to say this, as I love you. I've observed it at our church. We are an affluent, rich church. I don't know if you knew that. 
But the wealthier you get, I find it, it's more difficult to give. I mean, go figure, right? The more money you make, the more your standard of living goes up, certainly doesn't match with the standard of giving. You know, Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows all about us. And he will reveal, I think, in some measure on the last day, whether or not the first world church, basking in all kinds of wealth and indulgence, gave, gave proportionately, sacrificially, versus much, much poorer third world churches. Can I press this home a little bit further? Most of us in this room are second or third generation Asian Americans, you would say. Some of you grew up in a church. Do you, you do know that when I look at offering and giving of second and third generation folks who are way more educated, way more assimilated, way more successful, way more wealthy, does the second and third generation giving come anywhere close to the percentage and sacrifice of first generation immigrants? My friend, Apostle Paul purposefully presented Macedonian believers to stir the conscience of wealthier Corinthians to generosity. Those are four lessons. Those are four lessons. But you need way more than lessons. You need movements on your heart. I do too. What are the heart movements toward generosity? Well, Apostle Paul offers that as well, does he not? Heart movement number one. It's not yours anyway. It's not yours anyway. I think this sermon I could preach every Sunday. Because we forget it every week, don't we? We forget every day, don't we? You're like driving to work. Some of you slaving away, working really hard. And you feel you earned all that. Yes, yes, in a human person, you earned that. You deserve it. True, true. But do you know who the ultimate giver was that you could drive to work, that you had the job, that your heart beat, that you could talk, that you feel healthy, that you had an opportunity to be hired, that people could pay you a paycheck? I mean, if you work for the federal government, you didn't even get a paycheck. It's not yours anyway. It's not yours anyway. It's not yours anyway. Here's what God calls you to do. He calls you to be good stewards with it, good managers with it. You are supposed to report and return back to your investors. In this case, there's only one sole investor. There's only one ultimate sole investor, God. Here's how Apostle Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, what do you have that's not a gift? What do you have that's not a gift? What do you have that is not really ultimately being given to you by the grace of God? It's not yours anyway. For God supplies all food and drink and oxygen and the created order to continue. He supplies all your needs at all times so that you may abound. You may overflow. You may be generous in love and good works. The last book of the Old Testament is by a prophet named Malachi. 
And in chapter 3, he brings a straight, direct charge from God himself. Listen carefully to how the Old Testament ends. Verses 8 through 10 of Malachi 3. Will man rob God? What? Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? What do you mean rob God? Here it is. Yet you are robbing me. That's what God says. That's what God's saying to his people. His people, not, not the irreligious folks. He says, you religious people, you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the doors of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Crazy talk. Crazy talk. God here charges his people to tithe in seasons of famine. Literally. In affliction. You have nothing. Still, bring the tithe into the storehouse. Why don't you test God? Here's the one time you should test God. Let's see if you are financially, materially in your possessions, returning back as a pledge what rightfully already belongs to him, and let's see if God will not supply all your needs. Our hearts have got to be moved. It has to be thoroughly detoxed. From any notion or thought or prevailing cultural moment, oh, that's mine. I earned that. I got that. I worked for it. God says, you're robbing me. You're robbing me. It's not yours anyway. Where do we start? Where do we start to really measure whether or not you're still robbing God? You're still robbing God. And some of you are thinking, you know, if you happen to steal or rob, you robbed like 10 banks last year. But you feel better this year. Why? Because you robbed five. You only robbed five banks versus ten banks. You robbed five less banks. But you're still in robbery. You're still in robbery. This is the same kind of notion that God is charging with his people. And here's what God is directly saying to Malachi. The 10%, the 10%, which is a tithe, 10%, which is a tithe, giving of all the 10% that you may, come by way of income, is a practical, visible, spiritual, disciplined way to see whether you are in the business of robbing God or not. And here it says, Christ Central, we made it so easy online. Just click something and then it's automatic for the rest of the year. Go in and sign up on Christ Central. Let's see, if you want to stop robbing God, but return and report back to what rightfully belongs to him, just go online. It'll be done for the rest of the year. It'll just happen without you even knowing about it. Tithing, 10%, has not disappeared in the New Testament. It's actually the bottom floor principle that has continued into the New Testament from the Old Testament. But because in the New Testament we are all the more richly and greatly blessed, wouldn't you figure? Tithing has not disappeared, but it's only expanded. And one of our little kids of our church is trying to pick up golf lessons. He's about this tall. His coach, to accommodate to his needs, sought off a golf club. It's so cute. 
And now this little boy with a sawed-off golf club last night, day, was just hacking at things in the backyard with a kid-sized little golf club. Do you know that tithing is like God's way for you to start hacking, 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 practicing, and it's trying to develop you into the mindset, lifestyle, and freedom of not only tithing, but generosity. Some people have called it the training wheels. You need training wheels first before you learn to ride a bike. 10% is a, is a money marker that nothing really belongs to you. When someone says, well, I can't or we can't afford to tithe right now. Don't take it from your pastor. I can escape this one. This is from Randy Alcorn. He asks, well, if your income was reduced by 10%, would you die? No one has told him, yes. Everyone has said no. So Randy Alcorn comes back and says this. Then you've admitted you can afford to tithe. You've admitted you can afford to tithe. You don't want to make the adjustment on your lifestyle. You just don't want to tithe. Tithing is returning to God what is rightfully his. Heart movement number one. It's not yours anyway. God will never measure and judge you based on how much you made. Do you know that? Like God is not impressed about how much you made. God's not impressed with Christ central about how many people came to the church. God wants to see, did the church give, send out? Are you giving with what you made? Here's heart movement number two toward generosity. You give what you get. That's a common sense principle, right? You can't give what you don't have. But when you get the grace of Jesus Christ, you give generously. You give generously. Chapter 8, verse 7 in our passage, what do we just read? Paul says, you guys excel at so many things. Faith, knowledge, multi-talented, educated. The Corinthian church were known for their talents. But here in our passage, he says, but this is an act of grace also, and I want you to excel in it. Excel in what? Generosity. This means if Paul to say to you, I want you to excel in this, that means it's something you can grow in. That's something we can develop. That's something we can discipline ourselves in. That's something we can make progress toward. And the way that you and I know, if you really grasp the grace of God, listen to me, my friends. I hope someone's listening. The way you know this morning, if you really get the gospel of Jesus Christ, is none other than your generosity. How about that for a metric, huh? How about this? This is not even subjective. It's not like confusing. It's not a gray area. We're just talking flat out. There's a number, concrete, specific. The way you know, according to Apostle Paul, that you really get the grace of Jesus Christ is your generosity. And my friends, I'm not talking about the sawed-off golf club or the training wheels. I assume the tithing. The generosity is all the offerings and contributions above and beyond. The reverse is also true. You see, the reverse is also very, very painfully true. If you're not generous and if you're not giving, in God's sight, it doesn't matter what you're saying, what you're pretending. It doesn't matter what you're singing. It doesn't matter your posturing. It doesn't even matter how much you're serving religiously. 
God knows what's on your heart. And it takes a movement of the heart. So how can our hearts be moved? You can only give what you get. And if you get the grace of Jesus Christ, you're going to give generously. So how can this heart be moved? Here's how. Here's what Paul didn't do. Notice how he doesn't guilt trip you. He says in chapter 8, verse 8, I wish I could give this as a command, but I don't even command you. I'm not going to coerce you. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to force you. Wow. How about that for fundraising? Because Apostle Paul knows that if I force you and coerce you and guilt you into doing this, it actually won't change your heart. It's not going to change your lifestyles. There's a better way. It's a gospel way. And here's how the gospel works. Gospel meditations create gospel motivations. Gospel meditations will create gospel motivations. Please don't skip over the word meditations, my friend. Meditations takes more than two minutes a day reading a verse. Meditations is the bathing and soaking. It is Eric Choi's story of grace regularly. 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 times. You need to pray and preach back to your heart until your heart is moved. And it will move. Because the gospel of God is the very power of God to save all. It will move. And here's what Apostle Paul offers in chapter 8, verse 9. For Christ Jesus became poor to make us rich. Christ Jesus himself became poor to make us rich. How does Paul go about fundraising for the relief of the saints? To a wealthier church that gives lesser than a poorer church? He doesn't come down and guilt trip them and say, how dare you, how awful and wicked you are. No, instead he points everyone to Christ. And when you meditate there, when you get the grace of Jesus Christ from there, It'll produce gospel motivations and you will give generously. You see, notice how Paul says, doesn't say, I command you to give. Although as an apostle, he could have. I just want you to give. Just give me a certain amount. Come on, just sign. Notice what he says. God loves a cheerful giver. He actually puts cheer first. Why would you say? Do you know what the Greek word for cheer is? It's hilarious. Notice how Paul, commissioned by God, actually doesn't just want you to give. He wants you to be hilarious about it. He wants you to be cheerful about it. He wants you to be happy and glad and beg to give beyond your means when you part with money. Because God does not want or need just your money. He wants your heart. Christ Central, you'll hear from this report. Praise be to God, we've grown in our giving. Yes. But Christ Central is in no need or wants just your money. Because we know God wants your life. And hilarious becoming, coming before giving tells us that what God wants more than anything else is, yes, money is an expression, but what he really wants is all of my heart. All of my heart. For Christ Jesus became poor to make us rich. 
And I am so thankful that God did not go through a series of calculations, pros and cons, gains or losses to save someone like Harold. I am so glad, glad that he did not decide to send Jesus based upon a standard of some fairness. Tit for tat. What have you done for me recently or lately? I'm so glad that God was not begrudging. I'm so glad that God was not coerced. No, John 3.16 tells me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you know what that tells me? God gave up his best, his very best, not his worst. God gave you his first, not his leftover. God gave you all, all. He held nothing back. My friends, this morning, I want you to know in your hearts the reason why you're so reluctant, so fearful, so undisciplined, so indulgent, so selfish, so wrong, so sinful. The reason why you mourn over parting from God's money is this. You're just not in love. You're not in love. Oh, because if you're in love, you'll always give the maximum, never the minimum. If you're in love, you give your first, not your worst. If you're in love and you have meditated upon the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, that will produce Christians. That'll work. Fairness produces Pharisees. Love and grace produces followers of Jesus Christ. We'll close with this. Generosity blesses all around. Generosity blesses everyone around. Paul says there's going to be hilarity. <laughs> there's going to be like comic. There's going to be more laughter, joy, and contentment when it comes to money matters. You know in your household when it comes to money matters? Is it always uptight? Is it always tense? Is it always scary? Is it always stressful? Can I just suggest something to you there? Is there no levity about it? There's no laughter about it. Can I just suggest something to you there? You are not getting the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. How the church and our households need much more comedy and hilarity when it comes to money. It blesses everyone around you. Everyone can actually relax a little more. And enjoy things. Here's a second blessing. It actually breaks open your prayer life. Breaks open your prayer life. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 13. Proverbs 21 verse 13. Read this. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor. Will himself call out and not be answered. Evidently. God cares so much what you do with his money that you don't do what you want with his money that if you neglect mercy and not care for the poor, your prayer life gets cut off. It's closed. You're going to feel like it's, it is bouncing off the wall. It feels like communion has been broken. Another blessing of generosity. It directs and settles your heart in the right place. It directs and settles your heart in the right place. Do you want 
Do you want a guarantee of how you can get more engaged and involved with global missions, gospel work, church ministry? Here it is. Here, here's, you can automatically do it. I guarantee it. Put money toward that. Put God's money toward that and your heart will, and your heart will chase it. Matthew chapter 6 verse 21. Here's what Jesus preached. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My heart, your heart will always go toward. You're going to get almost obsessive about things. The more you put God's money there, time, talents, sacrifice, the more you put God's talents and money, money there, there will your heart be also. For Jesus Christ preached much more about money than heaven and hell combined. Jesus Christ talked much more about how you handle money and greed than your sexuality. And by the way, this is how Christians win over a cynical world. Because Christians today could not really fit, fit neatly into the two political party system we have right now. Because one party seems to be saying, don't ever tell me what to do with my body. I'm a woman. Don't ever tell me what to do with my sexuality. I was born this way. One party keeps, keeps telling me, don't tell me what to do sexually in my privacy, in my bedroom, over the computer. Don't tell me what I can do morally. Then the other party is shouting and just frantic and they're scared about, what, you want my tax reports? Are you kidding me? You're gonna put taxes on billionaires and trillionaires? Don't tell me what you wanna do with my money. Here's what Christ comes to do. Here's what Christ comes to do. He brings them all together and his followers say, Jesus, tell me what to do with my body. Tell me what to do with my sexuality and tell me what to do with your money too. Let me close with this. Let me close with this. I struggle and wrestle on this topic. Sometimes I think I don't go hard enough. Sometimes I maybe need to go softer. I don't know. I really don't know. But all I know is this. This is a huge, huge matter that you will never significantly be free or grow in following Jesus without it impacting your bank accounts, your wallets, the cash in hand. Let me close with this question. When is enough enough? How much will ever be enough? I've asked you that question before, haven't I? Have you answered it yet? Thanks be to God in my household, next to God, Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, the ruler is my wife. She runs all our money, going in and out, because she knows if I ran it, we would not save. You're looking at a very poor money managing pastor here. So I get a strict allowance. I get a strict allowance. And then whatever we can save together because of Sonny's accounting, on top of our household together income, we tithe. For every year that we're married, 16 years now, we get to give of our savings, that proportion, that percentage, that would be 16%. Gladly, joyfully, we should do more for all those who are in need in ministry or in missions. Now, when is enough for you? How much is enough for you? If you don't wrestle with this question 
And if you never answer this question, I'm afraid to tell you, you might be too late to answer a much more important question from Jesus. What will a man gain if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that our hearts would be moved, struck, changed, challenged by this meditation upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Christ Jesus, who was so rich, became poor so that we might become rich. Oh Lord, may you produce in us and among us gospel generosity that we might more overflow for the relief and the needs of the saints, for the needs of the gospel ministry bursting forth here and overseas for your glory and for our hilarity. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.